I love singing with our church. Some of the things we talk about when we talk about singing with our church is that the most important instrument is the voice of the congregation. This is about us singing to one another, the scriptures say, with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, encouraging one another with those words. So that's what we do. And we intentionally sing one another's songs. So the idea is that every week there's going to be certain songs that are maybe not in your wheelhouse, but are in somebody else's wheelhouse. And we're singing one another's songs as a demonstration of our unity. But the one thing that will unite all the songs we sing is that we're singing rich truths of God's word to one another. Not just so that we are caught up in that moment, but when we're going through a hard time or when we're in a unique situation, those songs come to our mind and bring God's word to bear on that situation. So I love what our musicians do, and I'm thankful for them. I'm thankful for all the different uh, teams that we have that are helping make that happen, and I hope you are as well and express that to them. We are continuing our series as we move through the book of Matthew, and this week we are in Matthew chapter 17. If you're uh, visiting with us, you'll, you should know that that's, that's kind of our standard practice, just work through the book of the Bible. I don't want to be the one setting the agenda for what we talk about. You don't need to hear from me. We together, I with you, need to be hearing from God. So we just move through books of the Bible. So we've preached through Colossians. We've preached through Jonah. We've preached through Nahum. We're now preaching through the book of Matthew. If you're opening up your Bibles to the book of Matthew, chapter 17, it's there on the screen in front of you. Uh, It's on page 822, if you didn't bring a Bible, here in the pew rack. And uh, I'm going to read this whole chapter. And because it is God's word, we're going to stand for the reading of God's word. Matthew chapter 17. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he's an epileptic and he suffers terribly, for often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? He said to them, Because of your little faith. For truly, I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, 
and they will kill him. And he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. And they came to Capernaum. The collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher, does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, Yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said from others, Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free? However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you'll find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. Let's be seated as we pray. Our great Father in heaven, we acknowledge right now together that we don't grasp how great you are, the limitedness of our own minds and wisdom, and the vastness of your knowledge and your wisdom. But we know enough to say right now together that we need to hear from you. We want the God of the universe to speak to us. So help us to understand, not my words, but your words. And help my words be in service of what you are saying here in the 17th chapter of Matthew's gospel. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When you think of religion... What do you think of? Perhaps you think of a group of people who are uh, superstitious, gullibly inclined to find meaning in randomness and yet reject scientific reason. Or perhaps you think of those uh, television preachers who uh, use God to do these healings or make predictions. Or maybe you have warmer feelings towards the religious. You see them as people who have this deeper connection with the spiritual realm that gives them a quiet strength in the midst of all that goes on in this life. Well, Jesus' first disciples, his first followers, had their own ideas of what religion was, what the religion of following Jesus would entail. And so far in Matthew's gospel, Jesus has been reshaping their view of what it means to follow him, of their view of the religion of following him. And he's been particularly focused on on two aspects. One is clarifying who he is and then what it means to follow him. And our passage, is, is, uh, he, he continues that movement of focusing on those two things, who he is and what it means to follow him. We have three main stories in our passage. The story of the transfiguration on the mountain. Then the story of the casting out of the demon. And then the story of the two drachma ta- tax. And those three stories are each linked together with kind of uh, two separate sections, these kind of linking sections that link the stories. And each of those linking passages, he focuses on the question of who he is, particularly this theme that Mark sounded for us last week, this idea that Jesus came to suffer and to die. And then in the three main stories that sandwich those two linking passages, he focuses on what it means to follow him. You see how that works, how that flows? So what is this religion? What does it mean to follow Jesus? Well, we see from those linking passages, it means that we follow a God who would suffer and die and rise. He wants his disciples to understand that, like we saw last week, as we continue to see this week. But what does it mean for us to follow him? 
What does it look like for us to follow him? And that's where those three stories are really going to come, uh, become, shed light on what that looks like. So let, let's look first at the, at the first story. How are we to follow the suffering, dying, death-conquering king? The story begins and it says, six days have passed. Six days have passed since Peter made that incredible confession, you are the Christ, the King, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Six days have passed since Jesus affirmed those words as the foundation for the, on which his church would be built. Six days have passed Since Jesus then set his face resolutely to go to Jerusalem where he would suffer and die. Six days have passed since Peter, hearing that, said, No, 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 this doesn't make sense. This Christ should not be one who's suffering and dying. And six days have passed since Jesus said to him, Get behind me, Satan, linking that rebuke to actually... The work of Satan. Six days have passed since he showed them the implications of what it means to follow a, a dying Savior for their own life. And six days have passed since he said in 1628, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And so Jesus draws his, his three closest followers, Peter, James, and John. And they together walk up a high mountain. And they're standing alone on the top of this high mountain. And no doubt, Peter, James, and John's heads are spinning. We just realize we've come to confess, make clear, this is the promised king, the son of the living God promised in the Old Testament. We've affirmed this, and yet now he's talking about dying, and he's saying, yet before we die, some of us are going to see the coming. What is going on with all this? Their heads are spinning, and all of a sudden, in a moment, Jesus is transfigured before them. The Greek word there is metamorpho, like metamorphosis you know like that caterpillar goes into his cocoon and though what is in that it's not like something else comes in the caterpillar doesn't leave and something else comes in but when it opens up it is altogether different beauty and glorious beautiful and glorious even though it's the same thing that was that caterpillar just a moment before. So that's what Jesus does. He is metamorphosized before them. He is changed, transformed, and so that he is, though the same, something altogether different in glowing beauty, such that his garments are, are like light glowing in front of them. His face is like the sun shining forth. They can't even look on it. Like when you look at the sun, you have to look away. It's so bright. Here is Jesus And they are seeing a glimpse of what he will be like when he comes back with his kingdom. They are getting that glimpse before they die of the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Here he is in radiant glory. What an amazing experience. What's a great sign throughout his life up to this point. You you could not deny that this Jesus was a human being. But now as you see him transfigured before them, they cannot deny that this is also the, the Son of the living God. A caterpillar might grow into a, go into a cocoon and be changed, transfigured into a butterfly. But people don't do that unless they are divine. What an amazing sign. But it doesn't stop there. All of a sudden, there are two other figures on this mountain with them. Two people walking in their midst. Moses and Elijah. Why those two? Remember earlier in Matthew... Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets. I came to fulfill them. 
And if, you, if you've been in our series in Matthew, you've seen Matthew is just taking pains over and over and over again to show that the streams that flow in the Old Testament, the Old Testament that's sometimes called the Law and the Prophets, these streams that flow all find their meaning in Christ. He is the answer to the riddle of the Old Testament. He is the capstone, the fulfillment of all that's there. Over and over again, he's making that theme. So here you have Moses, the author of the law. And you have Elijah, the great prophet. And the picture is of them standing and fellowshipping with Jesus on the mountain. What a beautiful picture. The law and the prophets shaking hands, so to speak, with Jesus. And then by the end, the one thing they see alone is Jesus. As these two come to point to him, and yet are in harmony with one another. A beautiful picture, a great sign. I I can't think of a greater sign you could experience. Peter, seeing all this, kind of blurts and interrupts uh, without thinking. He just got to, this is a good thing. Yeah, yeah, I think it is. Uh, How about I build some tents? So that the, the, the three of you can continue to stay on here. Before he's even done speaking, a, another amazing thing happens. This time, a, a glowing cloud engulfs them all. And a voice speaks forth. And it repeats the very words that it spoke, that he spoke when Jesus was baptized. This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Probably Peter's thinking, yeah, that's what I just confessed a chapter ago. I'm doing pretty good. Exactly. It's profound. Something worth meditating on. This man is the son of the living God. But it is territory we've covered so far. It's something we already understand in the book of Matthew. But Jesus, or God the Father doesn't stop there in speaking about Jesus. He adds one little clause that wasn't there at the baptism. Do you see it? Look there. At the end of verse 5. Listen to him. Listen to him. The same word could be translated hear him. In fact, it's the same word if you remember back in chapter 13 when Jesus said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Same word later on when Jesus is telling a parable about four different soils, three of which ultimately don't bear fruit, only one of which does, and that fourth soil, he says, is the one where people hear this word of mine and understand. Or or just a little bit later, Jesus is warning the crowds about the error of the Pharisees, and he calls them to hear and understand. And just a bit earlier in chapter 16, with his disciples, just before Peter's great confession, he's warned them about uh, the the teaching of the Pharisees and the the leaven of the Pharisees, he calls it. And And he rebukes them because they don't yet understand. You see, Jesus has been saying the same thing all along. Listen to me. Hear. Open up your ears. And now the Father says the same thing. Listen to him. So, so finally, after, after 1611, when, when they, he says, you don't understand, Peter finally does click, and he says, you're the Christ. He acknowledges that, and now he stops listening again, listening to Jesus' words about his coming suffering and death and resurrection. And so the Father says, listen to him. You say he's the Christ, listen to him. They're terrified, 
fall on their faces. Jesus comes, touches them, they look up, and it's over. Just like that. Now, that is the sign of all signs, isn't it? I mean, that is, that is spectacular. You had a glowing, transfigured Jesus, what he would look like when he comes back as the Son of Man in his kingdom. You have Elijah and Moses together with him on the mountain. You have a cloud, a glowing cloud envelop you. You hear the voice of the Father saying, this is my beloved Son. I mean, what more sign could you ask? I I could imagine that this, was, this would be right up the Pharisees' alley. They would have loved seeing something like this. Do you remember back in chapter 12, they come to Jesus and saying, show us a sign. Well, he, he says, no sign will be given to you about the, except for the sign of Jonah. Then just four chapters later in chapter 16, 1, they come to him, show us a sign. And again, he says, oh, this generation, no sign will be given to you except for the sign of Jonah. They love signs. And yet, both times Jesus responded, he seems to be the anti-sign guy. Right? He's not real high on them. It's interesting that he goes to Jonah. Remember how we've looked at that before? He goes to Jonah, first for the most obvious reason, he's saying, like, just as Jonah went down seemingly dead into the belly of a, a whale at the bottom of the ocean, or a fish at the bottom of the ocean, and yet came back up alive, so I will go down truly dead into the belly of the earth and rise back up alive. So there will be this great sign. But he also, in chapter 12, explains another reason why he points out Jonah. He says, look, the people of Jonah's day repented at the preaching of Jonah. Remember, the people of Nineveh who repented when Jonah came hadn't seen the sign of the the fish. They only heard his preaching. And in the book of Jonah... Jonah, who actually did experience the sign firsthand, at the end of the book of Jonah, his heart is still unchanged. The sign didn't change him. But the preaching changed the people of Nineveh. Now hold on to that for a second. Because I want to tell you about the best man in my wedding. His name was Dan, is Dan Harak. Was then too. Um, and he was... Uh, He was a philosophy and mathematics major in university, and he was my roommate for three years. Great man. We had a lot of wonderful discussions about things that meant absolutely nothing. One of the things that he would rail against is this phrase that up until that point I had never heard, but I guess in logic courses or whatever, he had come across this phrase that was, it goes like this, it's the exception that proves the rule. I don't know if you've ever heard that. But it bugged the bejesus out of him. He just hated that phrase. He, he said, it's so illogical. What's wrong with that? The exception that proves the rule. I think what you have going on here in the transfiguration, and I'm apologizing to Dan for this, is the exception that proves the rule. In other words, this, this Jesus who is anti-sign. He's not about the sign. He's about, hear my words, listen to my preaching. There's this elaborate sign. The most wonderful sign that could be proclaimed. And what's the punchline to it? Listen. Hear. It's the sign that proves that signs aren't the thing. It's the exception that proves the rule. Lest you think I'm, I'm trying to play some gymnastics with this text to try and get away from signs, look how Peter treats this later on in Second Peter chapter 1. Turn there. In page, it's on page 1018 in the Pew Bible. Second Peter chapter 1. Peter's talking about this very thing. In verse 16. He says at the end of verse 16, 2 Peter 1, end of verse 16, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty, for he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born, uh, was born to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice, born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. They're saying, look, I had this experience, the transfiguration, and look what he says next. And we have the prophetic word 
more fully confirmed, or as some translations say, more sure, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. I had this experience on the mountain of transfiguration, and I want to tell you we have something more confirmed, more sure. The prophetic word. He makes the same conclusion that I think Matthew is trying to help us see from Matthew 17. You see, the people in Jonah's day repented at the preaching of Jonah, not at the sign of Jonah. And the disciples are being called not to marvel at the sign, but to heed the preaching. What does it mean to follow this Jesus? The followers of Jesus, then, are not ultimately sign-seekers, but listeners. Jesus is not calling people who are naive and gullible, but people who are willing to carefully, thoughtfully listen to what he has said and what the prophets before him say that are leading up to him. To examine that, to consider it, to listen to it carefully, and to take it to heart. It's why when we gather together on Sunday morning, even though this is an entertainment generation that likes to be entertained, we don't gather here to put on a show. We don't gather here to entertain you, to keep you on the edge of your pew. Though I think if we did that and mixed in a little biblical spirituality, we could probably attract a pretty good crowd. But what you'll find as we come together as we sit and we carefully and thoughtfully listen to what God has said and examine what he's saying and consider to open up our ears to listen so that we can hear. Jesus' followers are listeners, not sign seekers. We're not people grasping for the next spiritual high. We're people trying to understand what Jesus said and what the prophets said before him. And in this case, with Jesus' disciples, particularly, they needed to heed or listen to Jesus' words that this Christ must suffer and die. And rise. Which leads us to the first linking passage. It's the first stories of the transfiguration, first linking passage, verses 9 to 13, and it takes up this very question. Now, it doesn't right away. Instead, Jesus says, Look, tell no one this vision until they see the Son of Man raised from the dead. Now he mentions dead again, that he's going to be dying again. And again, they've got a question. Now, they've been told to listen to him. So instead of just saying, no, 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 you're not going to die, they actually ask a question. And they ask the question, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? What's going on with that? Why is that the question that they ask in light of his mentioning his death? Well, in Malachi chapter 3 and 4, it prophesies that an Elijah will come who will prepare the way of the Lord and who will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and children to their fathers. And, and the scribes then have taken this to say, look, this, this forerunner for the Messiah, yeah, we can look out today and obviously if the Messiah were to come, it's going to be a hostile environment for him to come to. But instead, what's going to happen is this Elijah will come, he'll make everything right. And so when the Messiah comes, it won't, he won't be rejected. He'll be embraced and celebrated. That's what they're expecting. And so this idea of a suffering Messiah doesn't make sense based on what the scribes have said about Elijah preparing the way. So that's the disciples' question. If you're going to be this one who dies and rises, why do the scribes say that Elijah has to come? What's he doing anyways then? Now you can tell Jesus understands their question because he says, yes, Elijah does come, and then he adds, and he will restore all things. That's what they're after. (laughs) Isn't he supposed to make things straight and turn hearts? Yeah, Jesus says, yeah. But then he says something. He has come. 
see. If you're thinking that the Messiah is going to come as kind of a, a worldly general, to kind of tromp on the enemies and, and you know, establish this kingdom, then you expect his forerunner to be someone who prepares the way, restores all things by kind of getting the political climate right. But Jesus says it's something entirely different going on. You see, he's coming to die because what he's coming for, at least in his first coming, is to deal with our, our rebellious hearts. The, the sin, the, the... Well, you guys know what I'm talking about. You have... You know what goes on in your mind and your heart and even in a day, just kind of the evil things that lurk there. God has to do something about that. And, and the Bible teaches that that stuff that lurks in you that's wicked is actually linked to the death in this world. All the dying and disease, all these things are linked together. Death is here because sin is here. And so Jesus comes the first time to take our sin upon himself and bear that and then bear death with it, and then rise up and conquer those things. And so his forerunner isn't one who makes the political climate right. He's one who comes and calls on people to repent and brings a baptism baptism of repentance. You see? So he says... I tell you that Elijah has already come. They didn't recognize him, but they did to him whatever they pleased. What did they do to John the Baptist? Right? Cut off his head. And his point is, look, the one who comes and restores all things, what they do to him, what do you think they're going to do to the Son of Man? Okay. The point still stands. The restorer came. Elijah came. They killed him. They're going to kill me. And then they get it. They understand he's talking about John the Baptist. So, the one there to listen to is saying that the Jesus who comes, or the, the Messiah who comes, who is himself, is one who's going to come not to conquer people, but to conquer sin and death. That's, again, the who question. If you're going to follow Jesus, you follow a Jesus who came first to deal with sin, to suffer and, con- and conquer sin and death. That's who they're to listen to instead of seeking the next great sign or moving experience. And so with that, it brings us to the second story, verses 14 to 20. Now, They're fresh off this exhilarating mountaintop of experience. They come down, and there's this ruckus about. And a man comes and pleads with Jesus, would you heal my son? He's got this epileptic problem, and he's falling into water, into fire. It's it's a really bad situation up to this. You're kind of used to this kind of thing. We've seen this in Matthew several times. There are people coming desperately, pleading with Jesus. But then there's something surprising, something different there in verse 16. He says, and I brought him to your disciples, and they could not heal him. Well, that's trouble. I mean, these are, these are men who in chapter 10, he, he gave the power to do these kind of things. He's ratting them out. I mean, what's going on here? No wonder there's this ruckus, this trouble. And look what happens in Jesus' heart. When he hears this, he's pushed to the brink. Verse 17, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? I read this. I I think of my poor mother. I was not quick to read. My two older sisters... She'd get out, you know, Dick and Jane, and she'd read the first word, and then they'd read the whole book. And then I came along. And she would open it up, and she'd write, okay, T-H-E. That's the word, the. The. Okay, the. Then two words later, T-H-E. What is that, James? I don't know. 
over and over and over again. How many times till you get the word the, James? And, and her, her loving, gentle, but how long do I have to bear with this son words, I think are very close to what Jesus is doing here. There's something that the disciples aren't getting, something that's as plain as the word the on the page that he's shown them over and over and over and over again, and yet they still aren't getting it. And he's going, how long? When are you going to get it? And what is it that they don't get? What is their problem? Look what he, the first word he describes the generation, faithless. And then, of course, he does have the boy come to him. He heals him. Instantly he's healed. And then the disciples come to him and say, what were we doing wrong? And what is his analysis there in verse 20? Because of your little faith. Faithless. Little faith. This has something to do with faith. I just want to pause here and talk about faith for a moment. Because... I think there are a lot of wrong ways we think about faith. Now, imagine you're driving along on some back country road and you come to a bridge that goes over a pretty deep, pretty deep ditch or a ravine with a river at the bottom. And you're not so sure that this bridge is something you should be driving your vehicle over. So you get out the car, get out of the car, And you start to examine the bridge. You look at it carefully. You try and check out the structure. And does it seem stable? Maybe you step out onto it and kind of give it a few good jumps. Does it creak or does it sag? You're examining the bridge. And as you examine that bridge, you find actually, though on the surface it didn't look all that stable, I can see a lot of good, strong steel infrastructure underneath there. And and as I see, you know, I understand that this is actually well built and I can see that many cars have driven over it. And as I see more and more about what this bridge is, I become more and more confident about driving over it. By examining the bridge, my faith increases. Right Now, what I don't do when I get to that bridge is come and start examining my car. Okay, is this car going to be able to make it over that bridge? How are the tires look? Is the radiator working right? That would be foolish. It's not by fixating on whether this car can get up enough faith to get over the bridge, can just have enough confidence to make it over that bridge. It's not about the car. It's about the bridge. Similarly, I don't examine the bridge, find it's drivable, and then drive off the side of the cliff. I drive over the bridge. Now, it seems pretty obvious, right, when we talk about it that way. But then when we apply it to religion, what's obvious becomes obscure. So we think about faith when in religion... And we think it's something that I need to summons up in myself. I don't have enough faith, so I need to conjure it up. I need to, uh, uh, there's something lacking in me that, that I don't have faith. Somehow I need to manufacture it. Somehow I need to just be better at faith. No. Look to the object of your faith. Examine Jesus. Look carefully at Jesus. And the more you come to know him and understand him and see him as the scriptures present him, you don't have to summon the faith anymore. It's there. You have a confidence that he is who he says he, will, who he, says he is and who he says he will be. We, we get this backwards all the time. When we look, lack faith, we need to look to Jesus and understand him more. And our faith will rise as we understand him rightly. In fact, just look back at chapter 16. Remember, I referenced this uh, when I was talking about how, how they were failing to hear and understand, right? Verse 8. 
They're still confused. And he says the same thing. O you of little faith, chapter 16, verse 8. O you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? And then he talks about himself. He says, remember what I did. Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets were gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets were gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I didn't speak of bread? Do you see, their lack of faith is because they haven't understood Jesus. It's not a, a, because they haven't summoned enough faith for themselves. It's because they haven't seen Jesus rightly. And here's the the on the plain pages before them that they continue to miss over and over again. It's that Jesus is the Christ. He has the power. He has the strength. He's the one they should be looking to. And their faith will rise accordingly. So you don't summon faith, nor do you look to Jesus, say, okay, I have faith, Jesus is real, I trust him, and so, and then go somewhere that he never intended you to go. I have faith that this job that's been presented to me is going to be mine. I believe it, I believe God has given me this job, I believe it with all my heart, and I drive right over the cliff. That's not faith. That's presumption. God doesn't say anywhere in his word that X job is yours. When you examine him and you're seeing what he is worth, he doesn't say what I do for you is give you the job you want. You won't find that on scripture. What does he say he'll do for you? He'll deal with the brokenness of your heart. And he'll, he'll take it and he'll forgive it so that you're right with God and restored to a relationship with the Father. And he will give you a new heart that has new desires. That's what he says he'll do. And what else does he say he'll do? He says that he will come and he will establish a kingdom on this earth that is good. Where all this foul and wicked stuff is gone. That's what he says he'll do. And he says he's going to come back and rescue his followers out of this world. That's what he says he'll do. And so if you've examined him and found him to be what he says he will be, then you put your faith in that, and that's where you go. I want a new Maserati. I believe it. I name it. I claim it. It's mine in Jesus' name. Right off the cliff. (laughs) But listen. There's some delicate family relationship that I feel like I can't walk in righteousness in this. Look to Jesus. Your faith will rise. And you can. You can move that mountain. There's this strife. Neither one of you willing to humble yourself like you know God wants you to and ask for forgiveness Look to Jesus. Your faith will rise. And you can move that mountain. Or you're facing sexual temptation. You feel like, I can't overcome this. Look to Jesus. Your faith will rise and God will help you move that mountain. Unless you think I'm getting cute with this moving mountains. Trying to just explain away where it says he can move a mountain. You're just minimizing that. It it actually was a, a Jewish expression. A metaphorical expression for talking about doing profound and amazing things. And in this case that God would want you to do. I, th- I think probably one of the places, it's, it's several times in the Old Testament that imagery is used. A real obvious place is in Zechariah chapter 4, 7. You don't have to turn there, but I think that may be what's in Jesus' mind. Because there, um, Zechariah is, is, he's supposed to be helping rebuild this temple. And the process has been delayed by all sorts of strife in the, the nations around them. And it just seems like it's an impossible task to rebuild this temple. And Zechariah prophesies, he says, the Lord says, this mountain shall be moved. 
meaning the temple will be rebuilt. What I have called you to do, what I've asked you to do, you can accomplish. The mountain will be moved, Zechariah 4.7. If you, if you just rip this phrase, nothing will be impossible for you, out of its context, then it becomes some sort of like a pixie dust that you just have to kind of summons enough and sprinkle enough and I can fly to Neverland. But if you root it in its context, you understand this is the God of the universe and the purposes he has, the things he's doing in this world with his disciples. And he's saying, look, if you are trying to accomplish the things I have called you to accomplish, you don't need to be some miracle worker that says, oh, he gave us this gift. And now what do we do wrong? What do we need to do? What do we, 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 we? Oh, in another telling, in another gospel, he tells the same story. And, it, and what he tells them is you needed to pray. You needed to look to me. Faith is not looking to yourself and summings it. It's looking to God who's strong and what he's doing in this world. And when you're aligned with that, nothing can stop the God of this universe and his plans. And as much as you're serving that, nothing is impossible for you. This mountain can be moved. If the first story is saying, listen to Jesus, the second story is saying, look to Jesus and your faith will rise verses 22 and 23 are again that linking passage again he goes back to this theme of his coming death suffering death and resurrection again the disciples aren't grasping it they're greatly distressed this is a theme that was sounded last week I've already commented on it so I'm going to move on to the last story verses 24 through 27 And I'll just be brief on this. But what happens here is uh, there's this tax. It's not a required tax from the Old Testament, but it's called the two drachma tax. And it goes towards the temple, the upkeep of the temple. And so uh, they come to Peter and they say, hey, is your teacher going to pay this tax? Uh, Peter thinks he will, uh, but then he, he goes in and Jesus has a conversation. He says, look, kings, it's not the princes who pay taxes to the kings. It's, it's everybody else, right? He says, it's like that with the temple. See, that temple, again, the streams of the Old Testament that find their fulfillment in Christ, that temple was meant to point to Jesus. Isn't any wonder there's no temple anymore? Just a generation after Jesus died, it was destroyed, never to be rebuilt again. He is the temple. In fact, you want to see how the temple points to Jesus, read the book of Hebrews because it's, it shows that, how it points to Jesus. He says, look, it's about to be obsolete. What it's pointing to is here. I don't need to pay for its upkeep. I'm free. But then he says something really profound and interesting. Look at verse 27. However, not to give offense. If you read this story and you think it's about the amazing way that Jesus arranged for Peter to get the money, which is amazing. This is not a how-to of how to find the money to pay your taxes, right? (laughs) Matthew's doing something different here. He's saying, do not give any unnecessary offense to the gospel. Now, when the gospel's at stake, when, when truth is at stake... When those Pharisees are saying, hey, all these things about the Sabbath and don't do good and lacking mercy and compassion and all these other things, Jesus is ready to make offense. He, he will take his stand. But when it is not necessary, do not give offense. Pay the temple tax. Um, I was, you, some of you know Saloma Smith here. Uh, she was a worker in Pakistan for years, and uh, she's now in our church, which we're really glad for. She had our family over for dinner, and we were talking about some of the uh, Christian persecution in the world. She made a really interesting observation that has just stuck in my mind. 
I hope I'm not misrepresenting her. She'll correct everything I said afterwards. You can go to her. But she talked about how sometimes in those places, Christians suffer because they're demanding their rights. And she said, when you come to Christ, you surrender your rights. Now, I can't speak to other cultures and other situations, and I pray for the persecuted church. So I'm not trying to overstate my case here. But what stuck with me is this idea of, I don't want to make any unnecessary offense to the gospel. And within my culture, there's certain things that I can get upset about and rage against. Do it my way, because that's my right. Or I can say, so as not to give offense. Here's the money for me and for my disciple. Changes the way you think when you're interacting with that frustrating teacher in the school system, when that driver cuts you off, how you respond, when the person shows up in church not in appropriate attire, who you fixate on, who you focus on. Don't put any unnecessary offense in the way of the gospel. We're free. We're free to live in this world, but we're free in a way that we're bound by the love of Christ and what he's doing. So if you look at our our three main stories, we're to be students of the Bible. Listeners to Jesus' words, not seekers of the next spiritual high, not sign seekers. We don't have to be, in the second story, we don't have to be people who are inherently inclined to be people of faith, who are naturally predisposed to be connected to the spiritual realm. No, what we need to do is carefully examine and understand who Christ is, who he claims to be, and what he said. We need to listen to Jesus. We need to look to Jesus. And then here in this passage, we need to be people who give no offense for the gospel. This is the religion that Jesus is putting forth for his followers. What does it look to be a follower of Christ? It means to understand a king who actually came to conquer sin and death. That's the who. And then the what. People who listen. People with faith, who look to Jesus and so have faith. People who are humble and meek, giving no unnecessary offense for the gospel. I don't know if that's your view of a Christian, your view of what you should be, or your view of what we are, but it's what the Bible puts forth. May God give us strength to be such people. In Christ's name, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. spoken to us, change our hearts and our minds by it. May we be people who listen to Jesus, who look to Jesus, who have people of faith in the midst of this hostile world, that we can be a winsome witness, not giving unnecessary offense, because we know whom we have believed in. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.